Thanks for checking out the second season of Crime Beat. I need to take a minute here to thank our sponsor, the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. I've seen shows there several times, and it's a great night out. This season is no exception. They have a new play, Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical. There will be more details and a discount code later in this episode. So thank you to the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts, and here's Crime Beat. This episode includes details from Kathy Torres' autopsy report that might disturb some listeners. Check the show notes for a time code if you'd like to fast-forward past the discussion of the autopsy report. Placentia police officer Steve Toff saw a dried blood stain on the rear bumper. There was another splotch of blood on the left rear quarter panel. It was 1.57 a.m. on a rainy morning in Placentia, February 19, 1994. It took almost 90 minutes for the Placentia police to make contact with Mary Bennett. They sent Officer Tommy Valentine to pick up Kathy's keys. And finally, they opened the car. A missing persons case was about to become a murder investigation. Toth opened the trunk of the Burgundy Toyota, releasing a whoosh of gases that could have knocked him back. Kathy Torres was dead. Discovered about 100 yards from the front door of the Placentia Linda Hospital emergency room. Why she was there, so close to the door of the emergency room, seemed like a question with a simple explanation but it turned out to be so complex. In the trunk, Kathy lay on her right side, almost in a fetal position. Hair covered her face. She had died lying atop old newspapers in the trunk of her car. She had balled up the papers in her fists. Could she have been trying to use the papers to staunch the bleeding? They asked John Armstrong, the cop who had helped Kathy with her college report on gangs to identify her body. John said he would do it so Mary wouldn't have to. It was one of the more difficult things I did in my career, and I've been involved in uh, a lot of situations that, you know, uh, you probably wouldn't look forward to as a policeman, but, uh, you know, identifying Kathy was... it's something that, uh, I don't know, it's, it, it was a difficult thing for me. You know, she was kind of curled up. There was blood about the trunk of the car. Uh, her hair was all matted with blood. Uh, that's that's basically it. I mean, I, I identified her and I walked away and just, you know, because the crime scene people in the corner were going to take it from there. One blood stain extended out from her chest in a straight line. Forensic experts call this arterial spurt. It proves her heart was still beating when she was stuffed into the trunk of the car. I wanted to interview Steve Toth, but I found out he died a couple of years ago. I talked to Gary Legalbo, one of the officers at the scene. The the stabbing occurred in the front passenger seat. Okay. And at the, at the I mean, a lot of this is piecing it backwards after we gathered more information, but at the time, we see a car, the front passenger seat, 
our front driver's sorry front driver's seat is all bloody front passenger seat is bloody there's areas not bloody i.e you're sitting down so there's not blood underneath where your buttocks or the backs of your legs would have been there wasn't blood behind this on the seat back where your back would have been but there was blood all in between the other areas that would have been exposed if you picture someone sitting in a seat and you could just see that by looking in. i just look in the glass window with flashlights it's dark out when we got caught on oh, you right. see it right there yeah right. and so we knew that this isn't good there's a bloody there's a whole bloody car here something bad happened in this car and Gary remembered another chilling detail. If I recall correctly, there was a bloody handprint on the inside of the trunk lid as if, well, that told us once we got there that she was probably alive when she went into the trunk and she was probably pushing up on that trunk lid, hence the bloody palm print, her bloody palm print on the inside of the trunk. So she died in the trunk. When she was carried to the trunk, she wasn't dead yet. Police didn't tell Mary Bennett the extent of Kathy's injuries which were mostly knife wounds to the upper torso. When a coroner later would make his final list, it would total 74 stab wounds that he could count. There could have been many more, hacks upon hacks that were difficult to distinguish from each other. The scene got crowded quickly, but no one moved Kathy. They left her body in the trunk to preserve the evidence. Her car was hoisted on the back of a flatbed and hauled to Santa Ana for examination. Here's how Darren Wyatt described it. And there are so many. Out of the 74 wounds, there's probably a dozen of them that are potentially fatal. Oh, okay. So it's hard to say. I mean, her wrists were almost completely severed. Uh, the, uh, the, her entire neck and upper thoracic area uh, had so many individual wounds that it looked like one big gaping wound. It, it was horrific. My name is Keith Sharon. I'm a reporter with the Southern California News Group. In 1994, Kathy Torres, a student at Cal State Fullerton, never came home after working a Saturday night shift in the photo department at Savon. In this podcast, I'm going to look at just how cold the case can get. I'm going to tell you about Mary Bennett, her family, Darren Wyatt, and their extraordinary two-plus decade pursuit of justice. This is Crime Beat, Season 2. Episode 6, Probable Cause. The Orange County Sheriff Coroner's report on Kathy Torres is 12 pages long. It describes sharp object disruptions, slashes, contusions, abrasions, purplish-black discolorations, hemorrhages, and transections of major arteries. It describes a level of redundant gore that would be edited from most R-rated slasher movies. In the language of the autopsy surgeon, disruption is the word he used in place of cut or slice or puncture wound. Somehow the word disruption seems too clinical to describe what happened to Kathy Torres. The report includes pen and ink drawings that show 74 disruptions on a generic female outline. To truly appreciate what happened to Kathy Torres, Grab a pen, hold it in your fist. Hold it like it's the handle of a knife. Now stab that pen down hard, 10 times, 20 times, 50 times, 74 times. That's a lot of stab wounds. The official cause of Kathy's death? 
exsanguination, or the loss of blood from stab wounds to the neck. 40 of the disruptions pierced her chest or higher. The killer plunged the knife into her neck at least 20 times. The coroner described it this way, a large gaping disruption that extends across the anterior aspect of the trachea. She suffered 12 disruptions above her left ear, as if he was trying to hack his way into her temple. 10 of the disruptions were slices across the small of her back. Could they have been made as she was trying to get away? Seven of the disruptions were made by direct blows to her chest. Her right forearm was hacked deeply, exposing tissue, muscles, and tendons, which leads me to believe she was trying to block the powerful knife blows with her forearm. She had 20 disruptions on her fingers, which means she grabbed the knife blade. The autopsy, which took two hours and five minutes to complete, was performed by Dr. David M. Katsuyama. If you recognize that name, you know your Southern California history. Katsuyama performed the autopsies of Rosemary and Lino LaBianca and Gary Hinman, each murder victims of Charles Manson or his bloodthirsty followers. Katsuyama, most notably, was the medical examiner who took the pillowcase off the head of Lino LaBianca and found a kitchen knife sticking out of his neck. Rosemary LaBianca was stabbed 41 times by three different assailants. Kathy Torres was stabbed at least 33 more times than one of the most all-time horrific murders in history. For years, after the morning Kathy's body was found in the trunk of her car, Mary Bennett woke up reflexively just after 3 a.m. That was the time she received the request for her daughter's car keys. That's all she knew. The police wanted Kathy's keys. It wasn't until a few hours later that Mary got the worst kind of confirmation. I started to get calls from people saying that uh, they had driven by on uh, Rose and that Kathy's car was there and there was a tow truck there and there was police there. And they still hadn't told her. And then at that time, I think, I, I, well, Tina already knew that Tommy had come for the key. And then I, I started to call the police department. And nobody would tell me anything. And I mean, you know, you're frantic. You want to know because right. people are telling you. We just drove by there and we saw it, and and they wouldn't say anything. And um, and they because they were waiting on 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 uh, the chaplain was it or the yeah. proper person to come and 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 notify me. Okay. And uh, all I remember is that uh, uh, I don't know how many times I called. And I, I told my son. I said, Marty, I go. You know, they. Nobody's saying anything. I remember he called too, and, and, uh, and nobody would tell him anything. Finally, official word came. Mary and her oldest daughter, Tina, were there with the police. John Armstrong was the officer who brought the horrifying news. Armstrong drove to Mary's house, dreading what was about to happen. I guess it's a fear. You don't want to have to do this. Uh, both identify the body and then you know, tell the mother about it, meeting Mary. Uh, and I didn't really want to do it, but I thought I was the best person to do it. Two officers came to the front of the house, which nobody ever came through the front, but they came up through the front, and it was John Armstrong, whom I know very well, and um, he didn't have to say anything. 
He's, you can tell by his body language. He, yeah, he, the look on his face, and he just he walked in, and and I believe the other one with him was Taylor, because John took it upon himself and said, he said the family has a right to know, he said, and he said they keep calling and nobody's going to tell them anything. He said, I'm going. And so he came, and then the uh, Detective Taylor followed him because there wasn't John's place to come and tell me. And, um, and yeah, and I, I just looked at him and said if it was Kathy, and no, I didn't have to tell him. He, I could tell in his eyes. You, you asked him the question, is it Kathy, and then? No, he, he said, did you find her? Did you did find her, I said, okay. and, and he looked at me, and, and, and I knew that they had and Did he ever say the words? I don't recall. Mm -hmm. I don't think so because by that time, you know, it's like... So he started crying. But they said it we was... both did. I think, he, yeah. All I heard was um, it was either Taylor that said, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Marty Torres, Mary's son, was there too. He will never forget the sounds of his family's reaction. It's like some of the screams I heard that day. Like they weren't from this world, man. They were from somewhere really deep in the human being. And just everybody in the house. Marty was given the task of telling his dad, Martin Torres, Kathy's father. He and Mary were divorced years earlier. He lived and worked in La Puente. And my dad was at work. And so two of my cousins, my co two of my cousins and I, we had to go tell him. He worked at a carpet mill as a mechanic. And we're just looking down, it's long rows with these huge carpet rolls where he's coming towards me because the security guard had called him that I was there, that I was already in the plant. I just told him, I said, you know, they found her. <laughs> the sound that man made. His beloved. He loved us all, but man, him and Kathy. He just like collapsed in my arms and my cousins, my two men cousins. We all just 
stood there and he sobbed, sobbed, sobbed. On the day they found Kathy's body, Placentia detectives Gary Legabo and Bob Jenkins started interviewing people who knew her. One of the first people they questioned was Sam Lopez. He wore a long sleeve shirt and a baseball cap. They put him in interview room number 33. It's a tiny space with a desk, two chairs, and a video camera. It has thick brown carpet on the walls to improve the acoustics. If you stand in the middle of room 33, you can touch two walls without much of a stretch. It's not a place for claustrophobics. It's like the room was designed to have less air. In some police precincts and on television, they call this place the box. As I listened to the tape of Sam's interview 25 years ago, I was sitting in room 33, in the same place where he had sat. It's the place they put suspects to see how they deal with difficult questions, to see how much they sweat. Police brought Sam a soda. In hindsight, I can describe the questioning of Sam Lopez in this way. It's not like it is on television cop shows. There was no good cop, bad cop. No one raised their voice. Legalbo and Jenkins just had a casual conversation with Sam for about an hour. They were effective because that's what got him talking. Remember, these were the same detectives who interviewed him three days earlier. These were the same detectives who thought he was lying then. Their opinions wouldn't change in this interview. As you listen to Sam talk, think about the context of this conversation. Hours earlier, police had discovered his ex-girlfriend stabbed to death in the trunk of her car. They hadn't told Sam how she died or what condition they found her in. All they had told him was that she was dead. Their tactic was to let Sam tighten the rope around his own neck. Yeah, we've talked to many people who have been able to get a hold of uh, lots more. So. Anyway, um, I don't even know where to start. How long have, how long have you known uh, Kathy? Jeez, I've known her for over five years. Hey, oh, hey. So you guys almost grew up, to, like, kind of grew up together? No, she, she moved into the block, mm-hmm. okay, which is right across the street. Sam talked about what a great person Kathy was. To this day, I have not met another girl like Kathy. She's always happy. She was always a happy person. Always with a smile on her face. Smile and you'll laugh. That's her. That was she would say. You know, when she see me in a pissed off mood, she'll say, smile and you'll laugh. You know, that kind of person, you know, brings you up. Sam had seen Kathy off and on secretly for five years. They had never been intimate, Sam said. We've we've kissed, hugged, just that. We didn't even hold hands because because we just didn't want people to know that we were seeing each other. Because she was seeing somebody. I know that she said that her mom said that it wasn't true, but to go to the movies and come back with a hickey, I think I've seen each other, you know, and I had a girlfriend, I've been with my girlfriend nine months, you know. But you said you were dating her originally back in like 89. Oh, this is recently. Right, I'm talking about in the past though. Oh, oh in the past, oh no, never. So you guys, you guys have never been intimate? No, 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 no. Kissing and hugging, even though you no. were dating, you dated for eight months at one time with her. Yeah, no, no, not even, her dad would kill me. Sam seemed to be trying to make a couple of points in the interview. Number one, Kathy pursued him. Number two, any talk of marriage had come from Kathy. 
Number three, all of their conversations about running away together had taken place at least a month before Kathy had disappeared. Of course, if you believe he's lying, then the opposite of those things could be true. He pursued Kathy. He wanted to elope. Their conversations about running away were recent. There are a couple more things. Sam wanted to make sure the police thought Kathy's drug use had escalated. He wanted them to believe she blamed herself for Albert Rangel's suicide attempt. And he wanted to establish his alibi for the night Kathy went missing. He told the detectives he hadn't seen Kathy since the Thursday before she disappeared. Jenkins asked him where he was on the Saturday night Kathy went missing. Saturday night. Sam answered emphatically with what he was doing for about four hours on Saturday afternoon. I was up in Kelowna. I was helping my friend, a friend of mine, move. When he was asked what time he finished, Sam said about 6 p.m. Then he goes on to describe the rest of his night in two events. First, he dropped off his cousin Javier at his friend's house in Fullerton. Then he went to the Brea Mall to buy a Valentine's present for his girlfriend, Perla Diaz. The mall, however, was closed when he got there, so he couldn't get her the gift. He said he was home about 9.30. He said his family could confirm that part of his story. In that interview, Sam forgot to tell Legalbo and Jenkins that he had also been with his girlfriend, Perla, at her family market until 8 p.m. I don't think he was trying to hide anything about Perla. It just seemed like an oversight at the time. But we later learned that Sam was with Perla till about 8 p.m. on that night. The first part of the interview with Sam lasted 41 minutes. During that time, what he said was very important, but something he didn't say was also very important. Remember, Sam Lopez was being questioned just hours after his ex-girlfriend's body had been discovered. If it was you and your ex-girlfriend had been found dead in the trunk of her car and you were talking to police, wouldn't you ask them how she died or where they found her body? or where they found her car? And wouldn't you start asking questions as soon as you sat down? After being questioned for 41 minutes, after a break in which police left him alone in the box for several minutes on his own, after tapping out a drumbeat on the table inside the box, after reading the ingredients of a soda can, after taking a swig and letting out a big burp, after wiping dust specks off the bill of his baseball cap, after a giant yawn, after all that, he finally asked the question. So, did you, do you guys know how she was killed? Uh, yeah, we do. Is it confidential, or? Yeah, it is. At this point, it's confidential. I thought you were never going to ask. Why do you want Because I don't want memories to come back, you know? Wait. He didn't want memories to come back. What memories was he talking about? The question was about how she was killed. Is he talking about blocking out the memories of how she was killed? Then Sam starts to speculate about what happened to her. You see, the way that the police operate is... Um, I feel like something happened to my wife, for instance. Uh, the first thing that police would do would, would be question me. Here, though, yeah. Any boyfriend she had or, or anything like that. Right, right. Okay, that'd be the first thing. Then they'd go around my neighborhood and uh, start to see if there's any sex offenders or whatever, whatever happened to her. Right. And question the neighbors and so forth. So, you know, her other boyfriend is in a hospital. We know that 
he couldn't have done it, so well, that leaves you. But you know what? Hey, it's a possibility that, shoot, somebody else from his family. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not uh, pointing the fingers at nobody, okay? But why, why the coincidence that after he hung himself, this happened? Why? Have you guys ever thought of that? Why? You know, it, it's just a question back in my head, and I'm always curious. I'm like, shoot, why after a week? Why after this happened to him, she gets, you know, I don't know what happened to her. You know, I, I, I don't know what happened to her. You know, I couldn't say this happened because I don't know. But this happens to her. Why? See, it's a I question really I can't. I, it's, it's a question I can't explain to myself. Here's the special Matilda discount. Buy one Matilda ticket, get one free. Enter promo code HONEYBOGO, H-O-N-E-Y-B-O-G-O. You must enter the code before selecting your seats. Don't miss the Tony Award-winning musical, Matilda. Packed with high-energy dance numbers, catchy songs, and a gifted young actress. Matilda, October 25th through November 17th. Tickets at LaMaradaTheater.com. Sam volunteered to give hair and blood samples to the police. He agreed to take a polygraph test. It would be administered the same night in the Brea Police Department, which was just a few miles away. The results of that polygraph? Sam failed. Gary Legalbo sat Sam down and explained the results of the polygraph test. The one thing I remember about that more than anything is that there was a point where I was basically telling him, hey, you know, people have fights, things are emotional. I realize, you know, you were concerned. She, you know, loved this other Wrangle guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, sometimes we lose it and we go mad and we're in a rage and, you know, we act out and do things that afterwards we regret and don't understand, you know, that kind of line of questioning. And I, I was mentioning to him, you know, that kind of stuff in a heat of passion is more like a manslaughter. It's not a murder. And, you know, we were just kind of talking about those things. I wanted to see how he was going to respond to them. And I'll never forget this. He said, what's the punishment for manslaughter? Because I remember I had to go get a penal code to look it up because I had no idea what the punishment for manslaughter was. So I went and got a penal code and I looked it up. I think I even brought the book in there. I'd have to look at the videotape again and set it down on the table. And I said the maximum punishment for manslaughter is 11 years. It's three, six, three, five or 11 years, I think it was then. And he had this look at that moment. This is the part that I'll, I'll never forget as well. He had that kind of thousand mile stare you used to see it on people that were on LSD. But he had that thousand mile stare like he was somewhere else. And it was probably a good 60 seconds. It was a long time. And I thought at that moment, based on where I had gone with the questioning, that he was going to say, you know what, I did it. And he, it and, and that's what it felt like. I was that close and he shut down and we didn't get a statement. Or Why? we didn't get a, a confession or an admission. Okay, if you're the police at this point, on the same night that Kathy's body had been discovered, would you arrest him? I'll tell you what they did. The case agent was Donna Rose, who was the lead homicide detective in Placentia. On that first night, she made the call to let Sam go. They didn't believe much of what he was telling them. They vowed to check his story. Despite their suspicions, they felt they didn't have probable cause to arrest him. 
Over the next few weeks, Placentia police launched a murder investigation. And I'll cut to the chase. Here's what they found. Sam's alibi checked out. On the day Kathy was murdered, Sam went from helping his friends in Corona, to his girlfriend's store, to picking up and dropping off his cousin, to hanging out for a bit at a friend's house in Fullerton. He was home by 9.30. His family confirmed that. There was no sign that Sam had been in Kathy's car that night. No eyewitnesses, no fingerprints, no DNA, which was a new tool in police sleuthing. There was not even a crime scene. Police didn't know where the murder took place. And there was another thing working in Sam's favor. He had agreed to have his hair and blood taken. He had agreed to take a polygraph test. If he was guilty, why would he do that? On Sunday morning, February 20th, 1994, there was a confrontation of sorts on Walnut Street. Gabriel Lopez Sr., Sam's father, came out of his house and walked toward Mary Bennett's driveway. He was angry that his son had been questioned by police, and he blamed Mary for pointing the finger at Sam. Mary was in her car, backing out of the driveway. And then he decided he was going to cross the street. Okay. And I said, at that time, I called his bluff. That's what you want to call it. I wasn't going to stop because to him, I'm a woman. I'm nobody. You know, he, that was his mentality that he, women were down here. And uh, so I wasn't going to stop. And he was questioning, he wanted to tell you, keep the police out of this. Yes, after he informed me that his son had been taken for to Bray up for a polygraph test, and and he asked me if they were doing it to everybody that they were questioning, and I said I didn't know. And then after that, he told me, "Well, let's keep it quiet. Let's keep it down, tone it down, and we'll take care of it. We'll, we'll ha- I'll have somebody out there investigating." In my mind, I said, "There's no way I'm going to keep quiet," and I did. I told him, "No. If anything, I'm going to make all the noise in the world that I can." It's it's your mission. It's my mission. It's my mission. And if you would have listened to him... I wouldn't have. Yeah. It would have got swept under the Because I'm a mom. She was my baby. One important point here. Gabriel Lopez seemed to be angry at Mary for influencing the police to question his son. In truth, Mary Bennett said she had no idea what police were doing. As a matter of procedure, they didn't let Mary or her family know anything that was going on. Mary Bennett wore a black blazer to her daughter's funeral. It was February 25th, 1994. Bill Clinton was president then. The most popular novel in America was The Bridges of Madison County. More than 1,000 people jammed into the funeral service at St. Joseph Catholic Church. There were so many flower arrangements delivered that they had to be lined up in the hallway. Police officer John Armstrong took a position near the front of the church, near the Torres family, just so they felt safe. Remember, a murderer was still out there, somewhere. Maybe inside that church. Tina, Kathy's sister, said she cried so hard her cheeks felt raw. Hundreds of people moved to the Holy Sepulchre Cemetery for the graveside service. Mary had decided not to have Kathy's casket lowered into the ground while mourners were still there. A boombox played a cassette tape of Kathy's favorite songs. 
But there was so much crying at the gravesite that the music couldn't be heard. Someone turned off the boombox, and the sound that filled the air was simply weeping. Her headstone says, Kathy Torres, beloved daughter and sister, child of the sun, your smile will shine forever. Kathy's friends had gotten permission from Mary Bennett to lay small white hearts made of clay on Kathy's casket. Mary Bennett herself placed a white rose on top of all those white hearts. A mound of white piled on top of that casket. Then Sam Lopez approached. Mary watched him closely. He was wearing an almost neon lime green crew shirt. On top of the mountain of white, Sam placed a bouquet of red roses. It was in those first few weeks after Kathy's funeral that Debbie Torres, her younger sister, got an idea. She was 13 years old, still in middle school. But the events of that somber February had changed her forever. Police were in and out of the Torres house more than Debbie cares to remember. But there was one cop, a detective, a woman. There was uh, a female uh, detective. detective that came to our house later. It was yeah. not the same. Do you remember who that was? Yeah, it was Donna Rose. She's, Donna Rose, she's okay. She's now, I think, a DA investigator. Okay. Um, but she came to our house, and I always remember, like, the things you remember as like a young person, like things you see, and I just remember that she was wearing a gun on the outside of her dress shirt. <laughs> and when she came into my house, I, she must have been, I must have been sitting and she was standing near me and I just kept staring at the gun on the, and it was like a, like in, a, in a good way, like you were yeah, inspired yeah. by that. Like she, that like thought, is a powerful woman. Yeah, because she wasn't dressed as a police officer. And it wasn't a gun in like a belt the way you see in most mm -hmm. places. It was a gun, you know, the way you see, um, like those leather ones. Oh, uh, uh, a detective. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And mm -hmm. I just kept staring at her thinking, wow, she's, you know, I was, I really, um, I don't know, it was something that I remember during that time. Uh, it caught my eyes. And I remember she was, I, I thought she was kind to me, so I, I... Within a couple of months after Kathy's funeral, Debbie Torres had decided she wanted to be a cop. And her first official act was to sign up for the Placentia Police Department's Explorers Program. She got to wear a uniform and work at community events. Somehow, she was helping her sister. Over the next two decades, Debbie would watch the investigation unfold, starting, stopping, falling apart. Her sister's murder and the way it was handled would change her life forever. Like her mother, Debbie thought she knew who killed her sister. From the instant Kathy Torres was found in the trunk of her car, Sam Lopez was the prime suspect. I'll narrow it down for you. He was the only suspect. Detective Donna Rose gathered her investigators and supervisors for several meetings inside the Placentia Police Station. They decided to arrest Sam. They agreed with Mary Bennett and her family. Kathy's ex-boyfriend, in a rage, prompted by jealousy, or her refusal to elope with him, or whatever reason, had stabbed her to death. But before they went to pick up Sam, they had to make one stop. The Orange County District Attorney's Office. Now we have to stop here. Take a break for a second, because there's another person you need to know about in this podcast. I called him one morning and explained that I would like to interview him. He spent several minutes explaining why he wouldn't talk to me. His name is Lou Rosenblum. 
1994, he was 42 years old. He worked for the Orange County District Attorney's Office in the Homicide Division. Lou was a smallish man, thin, pointy features. He looked like a character actor who would play the lead detective's partner and wear a fedora in a 1940s film noir. Among homicide prosecutors, Lou Rosenblum was a legend. He started as a clerk in the DA's office in 1981. By 1988, he had worked himself up to homicide. He was as intellectual as he was intense. The Los Angeles Times published an article about Lou Rosenblum. The headline was, Prosecutors 57, Murderers 0. That headline reflected his 10-year record in murder cases. Just a note, in his career as a prosecutor, his total record in murder cases was 67-0. The second paragraph of that story offered another statistic. Lou was 8-0 in cases where he sought the death penalty. At the time, in the state of California, Lou Rosenblum had sent more people to death row than any prosecutor in the state. And Lou was, he was a force of nature. The guy, he tried 67 murder cases and he won. 67 murder cases. I can't imagine there's another prosecutor in the country that actually accomplished that. He was California Prosecutor of the Year. The guy is is absolutely phenomenal. That was the voice of Matt Murphy, who was just a law clerk when he met Lou Rosenblum in 1992. In the early 1990s, Lou was at the top of his game. He got a conviction in the case of Stuart Tay, the honor roll student at Foothill High School who was beaten by his friends. When Tay didn't die immediately, they poured rubbing alcohol down his throat and buried him in a shallow grave. That murder was the inspiration for the popular film Better Luck Tomorrow. Lou was working on the Tay case when the Placentia police brought the Kathy Torres case to the district attorney's office. Lou was one of a handful of DAs who made the decision not to file charges against Sam Lopez, so no arrest was made. The DA's office told the police to keep working. I singled out Lou because the role he would eventually play in the Kathy Torres case was so important. Darren Wyatt, the cop who would eventually take over the Kathy Torres investigation, summed it up simply. DA's office told them that there was no case to file. When the Orange County District Attorney's Office made the decision not to file charges against Sam Lopez, Mary Bennett began watching Sam continue on with his life. Remember, her kitchen window looked out over the Lopez compound. In May of 1994, Sam went to dinner at the Soup Exchange restaurant in Fullerton. The hostess that night was a 20-year-old woman named Tina Montelongo. She was cute and chatty. I've talked with and messaged Tina several times. She's smart and funny and a good conversationalist. From the second she met him, she liked Sam Lopez. She came in... Um him and his friends, they came in to have, to, I'm assuming, our dinner, and uh, I thought it was cute, so I, I, got over, I offered him some, some free food. Sam took the free food. He started talking to Tina, and he made a good impression. I told a friend of mine that was working with me that day that I was going to marry him. Very odd thing to say, but I guess <laughs> I did say that. Tina found herself smitten. But when she told a few people that she had a new love interest in her life, her sister and a neighbor told her she might want to reconsider. When I found out all that he was um, 
let's say, the main, like, a person of interest in this whole case. It, it did freak me out. Sam never mentioned what had happened to his ex-girlfriend, Kathy Torres. He also didn't tell her that he'd been seeing two girls at the same time when Kathy died. By May of 1994, Perla was out of the picture. Still, Tina didn't want to date a guy everyone said was a murder suspect, so she made up a lie. She told Sam she was seeing someone else. She told him she didn't want to see him anymore. It wasn't long before she started thinking about her decision. I was living with a friend of mine at the time, and her and I were talking about it one night, and I was basically thinking about him and how he's been how he's been acting and stuff, and I was like, he's, there was nothing that indicated to me that this guy had any kind of temper or, you know, could do something so horrible to somebody. So she dialed his number. When I called him to tell him that basically I knew what was going on, you know, well, not what's going on in his life, like, and how hard, how I guess it's difficult it was, but that I had known that he was like a suspect. Right. Um, he had, I want to say he had told me like, you know, that they were watching him and stuff, but, you know, he didn't know anything um, and he hadn't done anything. So that was enough for me. Tina ended that conversation by telling Sam she still wanted to date him. And suddenly his life was good again. Mary Bennett saw it all from across the street. She watched the new girlfriend start coming over. She saw a blossoming courtship. And while she stewed, she had put her faith in the legal system because it killed her to watch Sam having a life across the street. I trusted in the system. I always believed in the system. And, and I did. I wasn't going to hurt him, you know, if anything, the thought that did cross my mind is, here's this big guy, what am I going to do to him? You know? But, but no, I never thought about, about hurting him mm-hmm. or anything like that. I just wanted some answers. Right. That's all. And if that wasn't bad enough, watching Sam fall in love, Mary Bennett's phone started to ring. The first call came on a Saturday night in the spring of 1994. It happened about 7 p.m., about the same hour that her daughter went missing. It was a man. The sound in this next part isn't so great. I was sitting with Mary and her daughter Tina at Mimi's Cafe. Then we started to get phone calls on Saturday evening asking for Kathy. And I remember Debbie got uh, so upset she would answer the phone and they would ask for Kathy. And she'd say, she's not here. And it was a male. At one time, he said, what do you mean she's not home? I just saw her. I just saw her. You know, she's there. Who in the right mind? Mary didn't think it was Sam on the other end of the phone. She and Debbie would have recognized Sam's voice. But who would taunt her? For the first time, she started thinking, could this be somebody else? Next time on Mom vs. Murderer, Keeping the Case Alive. The police started to spin their wheels. Kathy Torres's murder was fading fast as a priority. Once Sam's alibi checked out, what were police supposed to do? Crime Beat, Season 2, was produced by the Southern California News Group. 
The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. Audio editing, mixing, and music by Kevin Sablon. Field recording and videos by Jeff Gritchen. Graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work. Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused. Sarah Koenig on Serial. Brian Reed on S-Town. Chris Gofford on Dirty John. Madeline Barron on In the Dark. Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace. And Phoebe Judge on Criminal. The best way you can support this podcast is to give us high ratings, write great reviews, and tell your friends to check out our work. Also, you can listen to Crime Beat Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. That story was the inspiration behind the 2019 movie Finding Steve McQueen, starring Forrest Whitaker, Travis Fimmel, Rachel Taylor, and William Fickner. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to our new sponsor, the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. Remember, when you buy one Matilda ticket, you get one free by using promo code HONEYBOGO, H-O-N-E-Y-B-O-G-O. You must enter the code before selecting your seats.